Hey guys, this is Ryan Grow with Lifeway Films, and recently I had the pleasure of watching Someone Like You, which is a film by Karen Kingsbury, and I was blown away. This film really illustrated some beautiful concepts that are, that are really packaged in a gospel-centric framework. You're going to walk out of the theater feeling good, encouraged in your faith, and really this movie helps provide a framework for forgiveness and walking through tough times. So if you get a chance, I would encourage you, go to someonelikeyou.movie, and while you're there, sign up for Karen's A-list. You can purchase tickets, learn more about the movie, see the trailer. That's someonelikeyou.movie. I think you'll really enjoy this film. Welcome back to the show. We are so glad you're here and that you've been listening and loving the episode so far. Just, I've told a thousand stories, but I've never told mine. So I am thankful that you are taking this journey with us. And uh, you remember last week, I talked about getting to write books and how that was such an answer to prayer. But I wrote four true crime books before I finally wrote a novel. And in my mind, it was the kind of book I wanted to write, but I got rejection after rejection after rejection. Like the publishers that were publishing my true crime, they said, well, I mean, we really like the story. It makes us laugh. It makes us cry. But it doesn't have, you know, gratuitous material. It doesn't have sex. It doesn't have language. And we just can't publish it as women's fiction. At the time, that's kind of where, where that defining line was. And so I was kind of in a funk, and then I had a friend that worked at a Lifeway Christian bookstore, and she was one of the buyers um, for fiction, and she was just all about it. And she said, Karen, I think you need to write Christian fiction. I think that's what this book is. And of course, at that point, I was a new believer, and uh, I didn't even know what Christian fiction was. I'd never heard of it. So this became kind of an uh, you know an interesting thing for me that I would even you know imagine what that was. I kind of pictured it was prairie stories, and um, probably not anything that I was going to maybe write. And my friend said, "Let me change your mind." And so she pulled a copy of Redeeming Love off the shelf of that Lifeway Christian bookstore. She had me buy it, and she said, "Read this, and then get back to me." And she challenged me. She said, once you read this, I think you're going to understand. Well, I read the book, Redeeming Love by Francine Rivers. And when I finished last page, I literally dropped to my knees and I just cried out to God to forgive me for thinking that somehow writing books for him would be second best in any way. And just to uh, bless me with the chance to write books like that the rest of my life. And so it is my pleasure today as my guest to introduce to you Francine Rivers. Welcome to the show, Francine. It's very nice to be here. It's good to see you again. It's been so long. It's so good to see you. I remember where I was the first time I met you. We were at a, I think it was either, um, you know, ICRS. They changed names, CBA, ICRS. But we were at one of those events and someone pointed out, oh, you know, that see that woman over there? That's Francine Rivers. And I just had this like, you know, you were you were the celebrity for me that I, you know, I I had never thought I would actually get to meet you, but I knew how much your book had changed my life as a writer. So I made my way over and you were so kind and so sweet to me. Like, do you remember then my second book, Waiting for Morning, you read it and you endorsed it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's exciting kind of- watching you too. I remember we were talking about children because you had children and you were trying to write you know, balancing that time with career and motherhood can be a real 
a real zinger. But. Yeah, it really, it really can. I was obviously, you know, younger then and the kids were still little and it was kind of a, a miracle to be writing anything, I think at that point, but I had so many stories in my heart and, you know, uh, for those of you who don't know all of Francine's work, certainly look her up. I'm sure you've heard of Redeeming Love. If not, you have to read it. Um, some of my favorites, The Atonement Child, The Shofar Blue, Mark of the Lion series. And, you know, I, I, when you look at your career, what are some of the things that stand out in terms of letters from people or moments of epiphany where you realize just how great an impact you were making on the culture? I think for me, it was a shock uh, with Redeeming Love because I never made the connection between sex trafficking and the book. I thought I was writing about something that happened, you know, 150 years ago. Mm. And I got oh, so many letters from women that were uh, in that lifestyle or trying to get out, people that were abused. I was hearing from people where they were using it in um, ministries. And really that um, I think your readers can really educate you. And that's what was happening with that particular book. But I like you too, I tend to start with the question and I, I'm using the writing as a way to worship the Lord and asking him for his perspective. And the characters are playing out all the different points of view. So I think I, we're really blessed in the kind of thing that we do because it's it forces us to be with God that much more. It's part of our everyday life. It's not devotion time in the morning for a while. You have to stay connected all through the day and when you're working. Hey guys, this is Ryan Grove from Lifeway Films. And I just wanted to let you know, I recently had the opportunity to see Someone Like You, which is a movie by Karen Kingsbury. And I tell you what, I loved it. It was an incredible film that really provides a framework for forgiveness and working through hard times. You're going to walk out of the theater feeling good and encouraged in your faith. So I would just encourage you, go to someonelikeyou.movie, see the trailer, sign up for Karen's A-list, and also you can purchase tickets and learn more about the movie. That's someonelikeyou.movie. Don't miss it. I have chills listening to that because that's just exactly what it is for me that you know, I, I invite the Lord to be part of the process and to go before me. And I, I often feel like a sonographer, like I'm just capturing the story yeah. he's putting on my heart. Have you felt that? Yeah, very much so. And it, it, usually it takes me, I have to finish the entire book before I get what he's trying to teach me. You know, I have that specific question in my head that I don't have any answer for, and I'm struggling with it in my own life. And then, um, you know, it finally comes to me at the end. <laughs> Honestly, that's the same for me. And it's like, you're the only other person on the planet that I've ever heard say that. Like I get asked in interviews all the time, how do you work God into your story? How do you kind of patch God into your story? It's like, no, I, I take a question, like, how would you survive, you know, a drunk driver killing two of your family members? How do you survive that and keep your faith? And then God answers it as, as, as I work it through the story. So I yeah. totally, yeah, I completely agree. Well, take us back to the beginning uh, Franny, about what, how, you know, you're, you're writing, you're successful, and you have a moment where you say, I need to change this storytelling, and it needs to be for Jesus. Can, I, I know you've told it a hundred times, but I'd yeah, like to well, you, you know some of that story, <laughs> because my BC um, writing career was steamy historical romances. You know, when Kathleen Woodwiss came out with her book, and um, Flame of the Flower, or whatever it was, so that's where I started my career. I had majored in English with an emphasis in literary writing and minored in journalism because I knew from childhood that I was going to be a writer, but I didn't know what kind of writing I do because I didn't like to read, which is, I know, kind of different for a lot of 
a lot of writers that they all love to read. But it was actually uh, Rick's parents, that whole family, the whole family, they're avid readers, and they were giving me fiction, you know, gothics and romances and historicals and all that. And I, I, my first book was basically a combination Western Gothic romance. But it wasn't until I came to Christ that I, I started seeing that, you know, writing is really a tool. It's a bridge to explain what God is trying to teach in his word. And the hope is, and I know it's true for you too, that people read your story and then they want to get back into scripture and investigate for themselves. And that's where they meet the real thing. The real love story is through the Bible and that the Bible points to Jesus. Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, people will ask me about it. Like what separates you from a person who's writing a secular fiction? What's the difference? And I say, well, you know, a secular author can write about the physical, intellectual, and emotional aspects of a story. And I'll do all of that, but I will also write about the spiritual. And I'm not going to bring you scenes that are gratuitous. Because yeah. if, you know, if there's a, an affair, if it's happening, suffice it to say they close the door, you know, and and two days later, the whole world knew there was a problem or whatever, the, however that might play out. But we know what sex is and we know we understand these scenes, we don't have to paint those graphically to make the consequences graphic, um, yeah. the way that they play out in a person's life. So what? give me um, the stories that you write. Do you usually always see a piece of your own story in them? Usually, yes. I'm usually primarily one, one of the <laughs> person in the story, and it's usually the struggling Christian, the one that doesn't have mm-hmm. the answer, the one that messes up. That's yeah. usually who I am. Yeah, I completely relate. You know, in Mark of the Lion, I identified more with Julia than I did with Hadassah. Hadassah was the person I want to be eventually, mm. you know. But I don't I don't usually identify with the one that's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Far from it. Far from it. Right. I mean, that's, and I feel the same way. Like, I, I remember I had a conversation with um, a woman at a Bible study when I was a new believer. And she was just of joy, like the Holy Spirit shone through her eyes and her words. She was calm. And somebody in the room, so I was new, you know, I'm all new to everything at that point. And somebody said, you know, that that girl, like that woman, uh, her husband and her uh, daughter were killed in a drunk driving accident. And it was a guy who was, he'd been mowing his lawn and drinking beer the whole time and had to go out and get more gasoline. And just, you know, in that one moment's decision, she lost part of her family. And uh, but she's taken a Bible to the jail where he's being held, where this drunk driver's being held, and gave him the Bible. And I'm like, whoa! Like that's another level of faith that I'd never even considered. So when I wrote uh, "Waiting for Morning," that you endorsed so gratefully and so graciously, I all I could think of is I'm the person on the other side of the room going, "How in the world?" Yeah, yeah. And that's the thing. That's the thing that's going to. Uh, help the readers relate because that's where they would be coming from. Yeah. Well, and the thing is, is faith doesn't come from easy times. It comes through hardship and suffering. People that are the strongest and the the most brilliant lights are the ones that really have been through a lot. I I see that in the church people that that we know, you know, if if they really glow, you know, they've come through persecution and hard times. Yeah. Yeah, and that's even true in your own life. And I, you know, I before we talk about your own life today, what is your writing process or what has it changed over the years? 
Well, it's changed lately. I guess yeah. <laughs> I'm a full-time caregiver for my husband as Parkinson's from Agent Orange in Vietnam. And so mm. for, for me, writing right now is fitting it in where I can and moving my computer into the family room, um, which is kind of where I started. I mean, with children, I started a desk in the in the living room and I just learned to focus. It it was the noise would actually help me focus, you know, if they're watching TV or doing playing games or whatever. And when I first began, I had uh, one napping in the bottom. I had a military desk. So one was napping in the bottom drawer and one was in a playpen behind me and the other was in a cradle behind the typewriter. I mean, that's how long ago it was. Not computer. But um, so it, uh, it changes. But I think as a writer, writers have to write and we find a way. You know, we find time to squeeze it in and and you keep mm. that focus on what the story is and then you just kind of pick it up and keep going with it. And eventually you, it will get done. Yeah. <laughs> For you, is it like a movie in your head? A lot of times, yeah. Scenes. Mm-hmm. And I that's I have trouble sleeping at night because uh, it's going. It's just going in my head. Yeah. So that's why you can pick it up again. Like people will say, how yes. do you keep it all straight? Well, if it's a movie, yeah. you know, you can see it. Yeah. It's so clear. It yeah. Yeah. I have a picture of myself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I have a picture of myself writing one of my first books and Tyler, who just directed our movie, Someone Like You, that's coming out April 2nd in theaters. Um, he was just a little guy. He was probably four or five months old and he's sitting on my lap watching me type. <laughs> yeah. So I can, I can really relate to you have one sleeping and napping in the drawer and one's, you know, in a cradle and it's just. Well, you um, have, didn't, didn't you have five? Yeah, six, six kids. Yeah, so, so I only adopted. have three. I only have three. So yeah. Well, we <laughs> we kind of cheated because we had you know we had three natural born and then adopted three kids from Haiti, and, uh-huh. and that was in two thousand one. So they were like six. So we didn't have to do the cradle stage for all six. But, <laughs> you know, and I had a husband who just you know I still have a husband who just so supports me on it. And I know Rick was that way with you that yeah. um, supported everything you were doing. When did you know? Oh, you know, I, I think this is actually going to hit. Like, this is going to work for me with the, you know, the after you became a Christian, after you were writing different kinds of books. Well, my first book, the, the BC book, uh, published right away. So that was fine. But when I stopped writing for the, for the general market and started writing for the Christian market, or I didn't actually write for the Christian market. I just wrote A Voice in the Wind and I didn't know where it would end up. Um, I actually stepped back probably quite a bit when I first started because fiction was new when I came in. They they were publishing, I think, Grace Livingston Hill, but when they were also kind of passing around my BC books and some of them were asking, what are we doing? You know, <laughs> Who is I this? Happen, yeah, I happen to have an editor that believed that, you know, fiction really can be a bridge and it's a powerful tool for, for sharing the gospel message and they were open to it. Um, but I remember one of the, one of the guys asking, uh, at Tyndale that would you be willing to change your name and disassociate yourself from all the work that you've done before in order to be a Tyndale author? And I said, well, you know, if people really like your work, they, they find out who you are. So it would be deceptive to do that. Yeah. I would be very willing to write my testimony in the front. And he said, good answer. You know, they were, they wanted to get to know me and they cared about me as a person in my walk with Christ. It wasn't just a matter of 
putting a book out there. Mm. You know, I've been with Tyndale my whole Christian writing career. Yeah. So, did you have anything with Multnomah? Was Redeeming Love? I did. Redeeming Love was Multnomah. It wasn't right at the time for the list for um, for Tyndale, but they have the Spanish edition. (laughs) That's great. Tyndale's. I mean, Ron Beers. You know, the, the group there. Obviously, that's where I met, um, you know, Becky and Becky yeah. Nesbitt as my editor. Was she your editor for a while? Um, she, I think she was involved in the editing, too, because, yeah, I know her. Yeah. yeah. Well, Tyndale's a great, great publishing house. And um, I don't know, did, along the way, when so how uh, did you see success with that right away with Voice in the Wind? I Yes. It was, I think it yeah. surprised everybody because it was yeah. different from what they were publishing. What, well, what any of them were publishing. I know I right. was sent, my agent sent it to another big house and they said, we don't even believe she's a Christian. We don't want anything to do with her. You know, they didn't uh, want to talk. It was like, oh, okay. You know, we know we're going to run into that. But that was the yeah. difference with Spindale. They actually invited, they flew me back to Illinois, and they met with me, a whole group of people. We just sat around talking. Mm. Um, so that made a big difference. I feel like God just opened that door, and I told him, until that, until you throw me out the door, I'm staying with you. So, oh, I think that's so beautiful. You know me, I've been with a lot of publishers. Yeah. Um, but I've loved to You've know, written a lot I've of loved, books. I've written a lot of books. I have. For a while there, it was like two a year, and I, I just look back, and oh, I don't see me writing. I did write. How quickly can you write a novel? Like your first draft, what does that look like? A year. At okay. least a year. Yeah. yeah. For the and first so, draft. In some case, well, in, in first draft, and in some cases, I wrote, um, I think it was Her Mother's Hope and Her Daughter's Dream, it, the original manuscript. I ended up throwing it away because I didn't like the characters in it, and it was based on my family. I thought I don't, wow. I don't even like what's happening here, so I wrote it again, and it was so long that uh, they said let's break it into two novels. So yeah, that one I think was like three years, four years, something like that. What was your word count from books like uh, you know Voice in the Wind or for like the Mark of a Lion series? They were longer. Uh, yeah, I think they're about one hundred and forty thousand. Yeah, but like with the um, her. Oh, what is it? The Lady's Mine, the last one that came out. Um, I had to cut like 75,000 words. I call it my COVID book. You know, when COVID, what do you do as a writer? You write. Yeah, right. we do that. We shelter in place anyway. We always have. But I just spent that whole year writing and I wanted to write something fun and entertaining because it was such a serious time. We needed to yes. laugh about something. So, absolutely. You know, that, um, your word counting and throwing that many words away. I can one of the most traumatic experiences I've ever had as a writer was a time when I had written about twelve thousand words into a novel. I always liken it to swimming across the ocean. Like I've done it and I know I'll do it again and yeah. I know how to do it, but it's still hard. Like it's still yeah. like, you know, and I don't want to go in the wrong direction. So um, you know, I want to make sure my miles are put in the right direction and that they count with all those kids yeah. running around the house. So uh it was early on and it was maybe my fifth or sixth book. I'd written twelve, fifteen thousand words, something like that. And then my husband, Donald, came over to the computer. I don't know what he was looking for or doing. And I came back to the computer and my it, my document was blank. Oh, oh I said. Honey, what what did you do? And he said, "Well, I I, I hit something and everything disappeared, but don't worry because I saved it." <laughs> well, when you save, when you delete everything and save it, that's gone. Like there's no yeah. oh, oh, oh my. my goodness, 
I think I went through all the stages of grief, honestly, like, okay, let's, can we call, we called tech people, we tried everything we could, there was no way to get that, that back. So um, when you say deleting 70,000, like a part of me just like, oh, weeps, (laughs) like, where are those words? But you know, really, it was, I, I enjoy the editing process. That to me is really exciting. Once I get the draft down, and then I begin doing the, the work on it. Um, yeah. I find that a lot of fun and even cutting, I mean, cutting those words, it was a challenge, but it was actually fun because I thought, well, I don't need that chapter and I don't need that chapter. Mm. Um, so, it, you know, it didn't bother me, especially after I, when I did the uh, lineage of grace, I wrote Tamar first and I threw that. That's another manuscript. I finished the whole manuscript. I thought this isn't right. I'm going by Western commentators. I'm not getting the story that's really there and it tossed it out and went back and started it all over again. Just sometimes it has to go in the circular file or in the shredder or whatever. <laughs> right. Delete, yeah. put it in the box, put it in the in the junk pile. Um, you know, I know for me, when I, I outline, now, do you outline? What is your early process? I do kind of outline loosely, but the, it changes and they know it's going to change. And I, yeah. I'm sure it is with you too. You kind of have that outline there to give you an idea where you're going. And then you just let the characters take over because it's Mm -hmm. their story. That's so true. It's so fun to talk to someone who gets that because, (laughs) you know, I'll be here crying at the computer over losing Ervil, you know, just whatever the character is and if they pass and my husband will walk by and go, you know, are you okay? Like, yeah. My character, you know, my character died and, and he's just like, okay, you're in another planet. Yeah. <laughs> you, you really are different. But yeah, you're right. At some point now, I try to make my outlines really like I have to love the outline. I, yeah. It's going to change. But that yeah. makes me somehow it gives me like a, a sense of you're going to get this done. Like, it's okay. Yeah. You're going to get it done. And that, that mattered, you know, to me as I would head, you know, head into a quiet place and, you know, it changed. I would write, I had a quiet little kind of closet type space off my room, uh, my bedroom when we lived in Washington, that was gosh, for 13 years. And so I could just go in there. Now the kids knew they had open access, like come knock on the door, come in, bring me a dandelion, ask me to come play basketball with you, whatever it is. I mean, they would come first. But my husband did a good job of letting them know when that was a good time to go. Yeah. <laughs> but I could write the first draft in two or three weeks. You know, I, I wrote um, wow. even now, see, even now and ever after. I wrote ever after um, in four days. So that wow. I could never plan that. That was just the Lord. Like I had just lost my yeah. dad. And so I was very emotional. And I never, I didn't even know a person could cry that much. But that book was a military focused book. And um, it deals with the loss of a soldier who is mm-hmm. is a very sacrificial thing, and I mean, I just I just wept through the whole thing, and I couldn't I didn't want to take a break to eat or do anything. I just it just poured out of me, and the final book was pretty close to what that was. But again, I can't I would never start my book four days before the deadline. Yeah. Obviously, <laughs> that would not work. Yeah. But I do, I do feel, um, you know, there have been times. In fact, it was a Tyndale book for me that was one of my most difficult. It was the book Divine, and that was during the time when the Da Vinci Code was really popular, and people oh, yeah. were in the mainstream. They were questioning the divinity of Christ, yeah. and um, and that was awful. You know, it was a, a travesty to see that happening and happening on such a main scale um, stage. 
So Tyndale asked me, hey, could you do a Christian response? Like, let's do, could you do like a modern retelling of the story of Mary Magdalene and get it right? Like, show the divinity there that, you know, however you would do that. And I said, okay, well, usually it's, you know, usually God puts the idea on my heart and then mm-hmm. I take it to the publisher. <laughs> yeah. But this was such a, like, I almost had a sense of being commissioned. Like, we want you to do this. And I said, okay, well, since you have a vision, how about if I write you an outline and you tell me what you think? And they said, yeah, we don't want it to be like your regular work. We want it to be more of a mystery, a little more adventure. And I said, okay, I can do that. But, you know, let's just make sure you love it. So I sent them my outline and they're like, yeah, we love it. That's great. And so I I wrote it. And as I was getting toward the end of writing it, my brother died suddenly in his sleep. He was um, yeah, just 39 years old. And it was just on a, you know, it was October 1st, 2005, and I was just getting ready to turn the book in and finishing. So I turned it in. I think I was like a day away from being done. And this was the only time this ever happened. They got, Ron was one that made the call, Ron Beers, uh, who heads up Tyndale. And he said, Karen, you know, we love the writing. We love you, but I, we have to reject this. This is just, we, we, you know, we're wrong. We really want it to be like a, a Karen Kingsbury book. We want it to have more heart you know, and less adventure. So they wanted me to scrap it and just start over. <laughs> and my and my initial response was, you know, thank you so much. And I get it, you know, I, I but I can't. It's like I'm in the middle of going going through too much with losing my brother and I'm just going to have to say no and, you know, give you advance back or whatever. I just have to be, say no. And God would not let me sit with that. So, you know, I got off the phone and I went and found a quiet place and I could just tell that the Lord was saying, Take the instruction. Do this, yeah. Be humble and write this book because it's going to touch a lot of people. And that's my book that kind of has a look at the forays of like you know trafficking and whatnot, divine. And so uh, Mary Magdalene character, who's named Mary Madison in the book, um, goes through a lot. So I just you know I just took out the adventure storyline. I had to throw away lots and lots of chapters and redo things, but. Now, when I hear from people who say they were in a spousal abuse situation or they were being trafficked, and this book was what God used, you know, to change their life or to save it, every time I can just look up and give like a smile to God yeah. that He wouldn't He wouldn't let me say no to that one. Yeah. So. Well, I knew you needed to be busy too. It's hard to grieve. That. It is. That's right. You can grieve through storytelling too. Yeah. Um, and I was going to ask you that about Atonement Child. What what was the reason you wrote that? Tell me a little bit about that. Well, I had an abortion during college years, and I was still dealing with it years later. And I, and I had become a Christian. I think it was eight years into having become a Christian. I felt like, you know, why does this keep coming up? I know you've forgiven me. And mm-hmm. I felt that I needed to write the book. And, it, and of course, every, every character in the story is impacted in some way. Uh, and I was just dealing with my own issues. I was taking um, a course through our local pregnancy counseling center on survivors and, and people who have had, you know, the post-abortion syndrome type thing. And and so I had support around me the whole time. It was actually the most cleansing um, book that I've written because I was able to realize at the end that it was really God forgiving me. I couldn't forgive myself and it kept coming up because I kept holding on to it. So it was, um, Rick was concerned about how the public would take it and everything that I think that uh, we were concerned about never happened. I got numerous Mm. letters from that, from other women that have been through it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think sometimes uh, we have to go right into the darkest places of our life and 
and take it to the Lord. And for us, you know, we can use the writing as a tool to explore it and to ask all the questions we need to ask. And then God meets us right there and shows us what we need to know. And people appreciate it because they can they can read the authenticity and the honesty through the lines of the story. And then they don't feel judged. You know, they feel like, okay, you know, now I can see my way through this because she gave you the hope through the story. And, you know, I often say when Jesus wanted to tell you something straight, he just tell you something straight. And when he yeah. wanted to make a point, he might turn over a table. But yeah. when he wanted to touch your heart, he told a story. Yeah. And sometimes I long for, I hope that in heaven we'll have a screening room or an area where you can go and watch some of these things that, that you know, the Chosen does a great job, but let's look at how would it, how was it really? And to, yeah. to be sitting at the feet of Jesus and hearing him tell these stories, I, I think many times it's easy to read them with a dry tone. And in reality, it would have been a tearjerker. Yeah. Or laughter. Or laughter. Just, yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. there's humor in there too. Yeah. Someday My story, we'll um, yeah, someday when we, that, we always talk about that, we have questions around the dinner table and we say, what would be the most fun thing to find in heaven, you know, whatever, we have different ones, but that question when it comes up, it's like, well, I want a screening room, I want to see, you know, the yeah. Red Sea parted and I want to see Noah on the ark and all that, wouldn't that be fun though? Yeah. <laughs> you talk about your... Uh, your on-screen adaptations that would be about well, not even not even just meeting and just seeing it on screen but you get to meet him and talk to him uh, <laughs> and find out yeah. what was it like what was it yeah, actually like? sit next to noah you know and, yeah and watch the uh, get a get a kind of play-by-play of what that was like oh that'd be i mean we though there's got to be a way these stories are too dear and too important to us as christians um yeah. to not have some deeper sense like in corinthians when it says now we know in part but then we shall know fully, even as we are fully known. So I think that, well, I'm excited for all that to come. But um, my story that kind of took that route into the abortion situation and, and the pain of, of of the surviving mom. I mean, the mom is the one that's going to go through this pain and so many times convinced by either, you know, the guy who was the father um, or potentially just society and society's views that this is nothing, it's just some cells, it's not that big deal. And um, anyway, my story is I didn't have an abortion myself, but I drove a friend. A friend called me, she was 16, and I was not a Christian, but I knew better. You know, I, I knew that this wasn't the right answer for her. She'd already had two other abortions, I knew that. And the boyfriend was supposed to pick her up. Her parents were out of town, and he never showed. So she called me, and I was two years older. And at 18, I went and picked her up, and I took her. And I sat in the waiting room and waited. And uh, I tell you, I, I went on after I read Atonement Child, I called the friend, and I just wept with her on the phone and apologized for not being a better friend. I was older, and I knew better. I knew I knew that it wasn't going to be the right thing. But it, you know, her appointment was made. I mean, I justified it all the ways you would, yeah. you know, as a, as an eighteen year old. But I wrote the book Shades of Blue, um, and it was about a a woman who's a young teacher, twenty six, and hasn't gotten over it. She just hasn't gotten over it. She takes a run on the beach every day. She has a white little cross. Um, mm-hmm. She knows the baby was a girl, and she's able. She had etched a name onto the cross. And she's still stuck there. And then um, uh, the guy who was her boyfriend at the time is about to get married. And it just hits him at the same time. It's, you know, the Lord worked in both their lives that um, 
as he's getting ready to get married, he keeps being compelled with the thought that I cannot say I do until I go back to Holden Beach, North Carolina and say, I'm sorry. And so he goes back and, you know, they have these three days together and they grieve together and she's able to find healing through Jesus. And he doesn't end up staying with her. He goes back and gets married. But um, at the back of the book, I wrote my story and how, um, you know, this is not a, we don't write books like this to shed a bunch of shame on on women who've had abortions. That's the thing. So true, so true. I remember uh, doing an interview after the book came out and the the person was bragging about how they were doing this protest and um, marching through the streets and all that. And then you said, uh, how do you feel about that? And I said, well, your church would be the last one I'd ever go to. And he was kind of shocked. And I said, you have to be willing to stand at the door when they're coming out after they've made the worst decision of their life and embrace them and love them there. Not yes. You know, shame them in the street. Right. There are a lot of people that do that. A lot, I mean, a lot of people do stand and pray and are there to love, to love yes. these women. And it, there are more and more. And I don't think what people realize is that, you know, the abortion impacts the woman. It takes the life of a child, but it impacts everybody around them. It impacts our culture. Mm-hmm. It's that we haven't yet seen. Um, anyway. I completely agree. You know, as a reporter, before I was writing books, um, I was a, I was a reporter, first a sports writer, and then I was a news reporter. And it was a weekend. I was covering a weekend beat. And it wasn't my normal thing. And they had me go and cover an abortion protest. Mm-hmm. And the, the stories that were being run at that time were always like these crazy, angry Christians, yeah. um, you know, holding signs, the end is near, and yelling at people who were trying to get into an abortion clinic. And so that's kind of what I expected to see, even though I was a new Christian, I was really curious how this was going to play out. And I was three months or four months pregnant with Kelsey, our our first child. So it was a lot of emotion to take to in a a moment like this. So I go and there were like these layers of of things. So the first layer of people near the abortion clinic were sitting, you know, silently protesting and they had their arms linked. They weren't yelling or doing anything, but they wouldn't move. So you couldn't come and go. They were blocking the way. And that was, that's against the law for them to have done. Um, the next line of people were the ones who were angry that those people were blocking the door. And they were the ones chanting. And I can still remember um, they chanted two things that, that will always be in my mind because I just put my hand on my on my tummy, you know, and just was thinking about this little life inside of me. And they were chanting, um, unborn babies can't feel pain. Unborn babies oh. can't feel pain. Which is just, I mean, I closed my eyes and yeah. I thought, wow, this is, I've never read this story in the newspaper. Like I never, no one's ever covered this angle, you know. And the other thing they kept chanting was, if the Pope could get pregnant, abortion would be a sacrament. They kept on chanting this. Oh, and they yeah. were waving hangers. And, and then the next layer of people were church groups, like you said, that were like, you know, praying quietly, crying, trying to just, just bring a peace to the moment. Yeah. Um, so the police came and they dragged away the people who were blocking the door, and um, and I interviewed a few different people and I wrote the story what I by what I heard and saw and my editor was so nervous to publish it he said I oh, would never like, no one's ever talked about this I'm like well how about fair journalism like how about we show yeah. both sides you know um, and they got a lot of they got a lot of really good letters after the article ran but they they got a lot of hate too because nobody ever sees that side. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, we we as Christians can do nothing but have compassion for that. And I so appreciate 
um, you know, Francine, what you did with Atonement Child and the way that that opened the floodgate. I'm sure you still are getting letters about that. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard because, you know, the same thing within the Shofar Blue, which had to do with the church and the things that are happening in a church. You know, you you the letters come and you wish they wouldn't because you wish it wasn't happening. Yeah. It's sort of a reverse thing that, oh, golly, here's somebody else that's been hurt by, quote, pro-choice. And, and there's less pro-choice yeah. now than ever before. Here in California, they'll fly women in you know, pay to fly them in, pay to lodge them, pay for the abortion, pay to fly them home. And the the council on the future of abortion is basically their, their plan is to increase all the regulations on the pregnancy counseling centers and decrease the regulations on the Planned Parenthood and the clinics. Wow. So, and so they want to make sure that they can get rid of the, the life side and channel them all down. And it's all about money. It's a huge yeah. industry. It, right. it, it, have you read the book Unplanned by Abby Johnson? I saw the movie. I thought it was a great movie. Yeah, but then oh, it was the book shocking. Is, yeah, the book is really good. She was uh, the head of an abortion clinic for Planned Parenthood, I think in Texas for eight years. And she mm. thought she was helping women until she found out what the real, what the real purpose is, is to make money yeah. off women. And sometimes you wonder... Right. And how much of it even is maybe more sinister when you look back at some of the, you know, even racist roots that go toward the initial beginnings, you know, of of abortion and the number of people that tend to come from, you know, inner city or or lower income or whatever. Just it's like, what are we doing trying to sanitize a generation or or what are you saying? Like how how deep and sinister does that actually get? And of course it does. And it's a trick and it's a lie because the enemy is the father of lies. And yeah. so when you have a woman who's been through this, like I have a, I, you know, I have more than one friend who's been through this and they get, it just does not go away. Like yeah. birth dates, how old they would have been, um, what they might've been doing. I mean, those things yeah. haunt you. Yeah. I'd love to the see grace of God. on the other, on the other side of, you know, the aftermath of abortion in the women's magazines. <laughs> you want to do a real story on women? Maybe you should address that. That's right. That's right. Or but you don't got, see that. Yeah. You don't see that. It's a you know, it's a sinister thing from the dark side of, you know, from the de- from the devil. It, it, it just really yeah. is, and it's meant to create more than one victim. Like you said, it's not even just the oh. mom. I mean, it's the family and extended family and the and the culture and the community. And who did we lose along the way? Yeah. Um, We're losing anyway. a whole generation. Yeah. yeah. I just wanted to thank you for that because, you know, this is life-changing fiction. It's what you and I do and and others that, you know, write these kinds of books where we're not content just to tell, you know, a love story, although there may be a love story in it. Oftentimes yeah. the greater love story is the love story of Jesus toward us. Yes, absolutely. That's the whole, the whole center of it. <laughs> that that you know, and I I know you and I agree about that. That Christian fiction isn't just putting Christianity in there; it's the whole skeleton of the story. If you take Christianity out of it, it falls apart. Just won't work. Absolutely so, agree. Yeah. Well, you know, speaking of books that went into movies like Unplanned, um, you you know, you and I have that in common now as well. Yeah. That you know, going from I of course, and how many have you had others that were made into movies besides Redeeming Love that were on television? Uh, the Last Sin Eater, and I don't okay. know if it's ever been on television, but that one was done a number of years ago by Michael Landon Jr. and Brian Bird. Yeah. Okay. But the bigger one, obviously, Redeeming Love, and uh, 
So what did you think of the whole process? What would you do differently? Would you want a bigger role or a smaller role? Well, I wrote the script because we had dealt with a lot of different groups, as I know you've been through the same thing, you know, that you are looking for the right gatekeeper, you know, and uh, Cindy Bond definitely was it. Um, but I never, the scripts that I would read, they just didn't understand Michael. They didn't get Michael. They didn't get that it's an allegory. Um, so I thought, well, I'm going to write a script and show them what I'm looking for, not expecting that they're going to use it. But they read the script and they said, well, we'll take this one. And then I worked, I wrote it as a linear story. Well, that would be too hard to watch on screen to see that whole backstory of the little girl. Uh, so DJ Caruso and I worked together and redrafted it and, you know, just moved things around. Um, and he actually did the scene um, where Angel goes up on the stage, that mm. the red dress scene. Um, wow. I, that's my favorite in the movie. It's just yeah, to me, me every time I see it, it gives me goosebumps. Mm -hmm. um, but the whole process, Rick and I were able to go to South Africa and watch the filming for about three weeks. And it, it was a, an amazing process. I didn't really get involved. I just was there to watch because it's a whole different medium. And I had done my part. And now it was up to the actors to do what they saw in it. So I wasn't giving points to the actors or anybody else. It was just watch, enjoy, and then see what God does with it. The The entire filming was done 24 hours ahead of the worldwide shutdown of COVID. So the wow. next year was spent in the, the home studios and stuff to do the the finish work. And then it came out very early, you know, very soon after the theaters opened. So uh, we were not able to go to the premiere in, in Hollywood. Um, mm. Our daughter-in-law and son put on a premiere here. <laughs> so we had the red carpet and the limo and crowd mm. and all that stuff here in, in Santa Rosa. Um, but it was an amazing process. And I think it, it was never really intended for the Christian audience my hope was that people would take friends that were not Christians and then explain Christ. And it, it was interesting because when we were at the premiere, the photographer that came was not a Christian, but he got the story. He And he was just, you know, talking to everybody about the story. And my friends were kind of laughing about, you know, he... He wasn't a Christian, didn't know anything about the Bible, but he understood what was being said, that it was all about God and the wow. love of God. Mm. Yeah. It's funny, as um, you know, as we set out to make someone like you, we decided the only way to really do it, because we've had several movies that were made, and very, you know, very thankful for those, some of yeah. which I got to write the script for, some not. Um, but we felt like was to open Karen Kingsbury Productions and just literally do the whole thing, pay for it, you know, yeah. film it in Tennessee. And uh, we had a conversation like that. My husband and I, we said, you know, like, it's almost like, what if the world ends on day 20 of our 25-day shoot? Like, was this a good use of, of $2 million to spend on a movie, which is very low budget, but it was like all of our savings, you know? And we decided as long as we are being the love and light and feet and hands of Jesus to these people, the, the 50 yeah. people in our cast and crew, then the answer is yes. Cause God's in control of whether it makes it to the screen. Um, yeah. You know, we're, we're set to open in theaters, um, <clears throat> April, April 2nd, but you never know where things go. Like you have, you know, you have to hold yeah. on loosely and just go, okay, Lord, but who did it touch along the way? Was it a driver, a cameraman? 
Was yeah. it somebody who was on set? Then great, because that's what you have us here for. We have to be on mission. And um, what a joy and thrill it is to be on mission with Jesus as any profession, a dentist or you know, a lawyer or a person at Walmart, whatever it is. But for us, it's storytelling. And now this new medium for, medium for me of, of storytelling through Karen Kingsbury Productions actually on screen um, has been just my favorite thing. Like I... I love it. It's been so well, fun. Well, it will make it it will make a difference because that's one of the things that we noticed. A lot of the people that are the actors and the crew are not Christians, but they watch what's going on and they're getting the story. Because we had one of the young producers said, you know, I I don't know Jesus, I'm not a Christian, but it makes me want to be. Mm. And that was like, oh my goodness. You know, mm. and uh, one of the actors that played one of the lead roles was saying it was the feel of being in that particular production was different than any he had been on. Um, yeah. So I, I think very definitely whatever you're doing, it's going to, you're, they're going to feel it. Whatever happens, yeah. the people, the crew and the actors and all that are going to feel the difference. Yeah, absolutely. Well, what would you tell your younger self just getting ready and started off in your, into your writing career, um, starting with, you know, your your first books as a believer, is there anything you would change or do differently or would you just say buckle your seatbelt? <laughs> I'd say buckle my seatbelt, but I, I believe that, you know, you write what you need to read. Mm-hmm. For me, it's you write what you need to read. I don't think about an audience. I don't think about, I probably shouldn't say this, but I don't really think about the reader. I'm trying to figure out things for myself. And I think that most people are in the same boat with you. So mm-hmm. if you're writing true to yourself and, and you're, you have the Lord at the center, it does touch people's lives. That's the additional blessing. Yeah, I, com- I completely agree with you that people will say, well, do what? Did you always get your message ready first and then you write a story to match the message? Never. Oh. Never. I just, I mean, even, you know, even the movie, someone like you, about two embryos separated at the Petri dish. And then one becomes London with her biological family. One is given away to a fertility specialist and kept on ice for four years and becomes Andy. And that little girl has no idea that she's adopted as an embryo and her parents, you know, mistakenly never tell her. And now here we are, tragedy hits with London and the guy who was in love with her and never, never got to date her, but was in love with her. He was her best friend, makes this journey into finding the other embryo. I, I went to an event, I was speaking at an event, and this woman had three little triplets with her. And my hostess said, you see them? Those are embryo adopted babies. She implanted wow. three, and they all took. And so she's got these little babies. And she was a Hispanic woman, and the babies were all blonde. Um, she didn't, you know, she didn't care what the babies looked like. And it just was, she wanted children. I wanted to, she yeah. said, these, these are three that are rescued. And that began that question, like, oh my goodness, you can adopt an embryo. Like, yeah, well, all the what ifs. That's something. It's just yeah. so that's um I write the story because I need to read it. That's exactly it. And and yeah. I remember after reading your book, Redeeming Love, and hitting my knees, I remember thinking, even if I am the only one who reads these stories that I want, you know, that I know what God's gonna have me do the rest of my life. And even if I'm the only one, that'll be okay because I love to read a book like this. Yeah. So Thank yeah. you so much for what you do. I mean it. And, you know, talking about a movie releasing right after COVID, which was the worst time, um, yeah. my son, uh, <laughs> my son, Austin, our youngest son, you know, he was, he was born with a heart defect mm-hmm. and his story, we're going to talk a little bit um, more about next week on the show, how his entry into the world uh, was, he came with this shocking heart defect and he, he played football through 10th grade. 
but then he was, um, you know, had that taken away from him. So we're, we're going to look into that. I'm going to have Austin as a guest on my show next week, but he was in a movie called 12 Mighty Orphans by Sony. Oh, and he, was, my, had a pretty, yeah. he had a pretty good part, I but it like came out. Movie. Oh, you saw it. I saw that movie. Yes, I like that movie. That's fun. Okay, so Austin is the the mean bully. Oh, okay. Yeah, in real life, Austin is not a mean bully, but he just does not look like an orphan. So they had to cast him on the, you know, he was the one, he scores a touchdown early on, and then he goes, like, stay on the ground, you dirty orphan. I don't know if you remember, but he has, and he's like, he's like the bully in the movie, which I can be sure to tell you was acting because he is not that way. He has such a good heart. But uh, COVID definitely interrupted that movie. Um, as well, because it came out right around that time. But anyway, if, if there's any way, um, you know, Francine, that we can pray for you in this new season while you are being a caretaker for your husband, who is a hero, who fought in Vietnam and was exposed to Agent Orange and uh, is more and more needing your time and your attention, how can we and, and all of my friends who are listening and uh, a part of the show, how can we pray for you? Um, just that he maintains that fighting spirit. And that that I can stay healthy, because my mm. prayer has been that I can stay healthy and uh, strong as long as he yeah. needs me. Yeah. Okay. Well, I would love to have us close with um, praying about that, and uh, and thank you so much again for your time, for being with me on the show today, and just getting to connect heart to heart. Yeah, it's been great to see you. Yeah, you too. Okay. Lord, we love you, and uh, we thank you so much for Francine Rivers for the impact she has made on our culture for the countless number of lives uh, hearts that have been led to you to a saving relationship with you jesus because of the things you have given her to write thank you that she sees herself as the first reader lord i know you cut us out of a very similar mold and i am so thankful that i have had her to look up to thankful for that moment when my friend gave me the first copy of redeeming love to change my life Um, Just thank you for her impact, not just on me, but on all of the world, Lord. Uh, She is such a game changer. But now personally, Father, I pray for her to have strength and health beyond anything she could ever ask or imagine as she cares for one of this nation's heroes, her husband, Rick. And uh, his time in Vietnam has cost him and, and harmed his health. But Lord, he's still here. And I just pray, Father, that he would maintain that fighting spirit that he had back in Vietnam, that he would still have it now. That every day would still be a gift, Father, for both of them. Would you bless their home and fill it with your Holy Spirit and uh, give them more moments of joy and blessing as Francine continues to write stories that will change the world for you, Jesus. Thank you for her time today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. Okay, so everyone, thank you for being a part of this episode and um, taking this journey as I tell my story. It's the first time I've done that. And, uh, we're thankful that Francine got to be a, got to be a part of today's show. Next week, I'll have my son Austin on, and he will talk about what that was like to uh, have been born with a heart defect and to have some very beautiful things that he loved in life, football and sports, and even a de- desire to be in the military taken away from him because of his heart defect. And you might relate to something like that. So Uh, Check back in with us next week as we bring you that show. And until then, you have a great day.